Today is December the 7th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Use Microsoft PC Manager to clean up and speed up a slow computer. The free utility currently is in public beta, makes it easy to remove files and free up space on your hard drive. PC Manager is in beta right now, but you can check it out early to see if it does the job for your computer. It runs on Windows 10, release 18.09, and newer versions of the operating system. However, I have a system with a later version of Windows 10, 18.09, but it is a 6th generation processor and it wouldn't load. The net of it is it may or may not work with your Windows 10 operating system. Fair warning, its download page is in Mandarin, but the installer and app both automatically default to English. The app appears to be targeted at the PC market in China, but it works perfectly well no matter where you're located, and it is indeed legit. PC Manager offers a simple UI to help you find and fix common issues slowing down your computer. For instance, click the Startup App button to stop some apps from launching when your computer starts. The Process Management option lets you check the memory usage of running apps and allows you to quit these apps in one click. The most useful option is Boost which immediately frees up RAM and clears temporary files from your computer. This is a good, if temporary, fix to speed up your computer. The app also has a storage manager option that lets you find and remove large files or junk files, linking to Windows built-in uninstaller and storage sense features, while the security tab lets you quickly check for Windows updates and run a malware scan. Yes, these options are available in various other parts in Windows, but PC Manager makes it easy to find them all at once in one place. The app isn't perfect though, such as the option to remove the leftover files that linger even after you've uninstalled certain apps. Nevertheless, it's a good free option to speed up your slow computer or help troubleshoot a machine. Most importantly, it comes from Microsoft, which means it's unlikely to, well, be bloated with software you don't want, and malware onto your computer. New York City kills Internet Master Plan for Universal Public Web Access. Two and a half years ago, after it was announced that New York City would spend $157 million to build municipal broadband infrastructure in poor neighborhoods, city officials have quietly canceled the plan. The now next broadband expansion was the second phase of the 2020 Internet Master Plan, a massive endeavor launched during the de Blasio administration that aimed to connect 1.2 million New Yorkers to free or low-cost high-speed Internet. 
The project had been on hold this year after Mayor Eric Adams assumed office. The city's Office of Technology and Innovation, that's the OTI, confirmed the decision on November the 29th, about a year after the de Blasio administration announced it had chosen a dozen businesses, including a handful owned or led by women or people of color, to spearhead the effort. The cancellation has not been publicly announced, but city officials said those businesses were informed sometime in November. We let all of them know last week that we had effectively canceled that proposal, New York City Chief Technology Officer Matthew Fraser said. Stephen Amaranti, co-founder of Sky Packets, one of the internet service providers chosen for the initiative, said in an email that he was disappointed by the news. We were excited to bring affordable broadband options to the residents of Red Hook houses, he added, referring to Brooklyn's New York City Housing Authority development. Fraser, who was appointed by Adams, added that the previous administration's plan didn't make full use of the city's existing broadband infrastructure and that OTI was planning to issue a replacement proposal sometime in the future. When it was introduced three years ago, the Internet Master Plan creators calculated that about 1.5 million people, disproportionately the poorest New Yorkers, lack both a home and a mobile Internet connection. About 3.4 million were going without at least one of those at the time. Many more only have one or two providers to choose from, locking them into expensive or subpar plans. One of those providers, Verizon, was sued by the city in 2017 for not installing fiber optic internet on time. Under the master plan, a variety of internet service providers would use city-owned infrastructure like rooftops and utility poles to build fiber optic networks in underserved areas. They also wire up New York City Housing Authority buildings, guaranteeing affordable, high-speed internet access for residents. The ultimate goal was universal, affordable broadband connectivity citywide. In the summer of 2020, spurred by the COVID-19 crisis, the then-Mayor de Blasio diverted $87 million from the New York Police Department's budget to fund the next phase of the plan. Since the change of mayoral administrations at the turn of 2022, the plan has more or less been on pause. Some of its architects departed for other jobs, and Mayor Adams reorganized a number of technology-related city agencies into one umbrella organization, OTI. Long-term, ambitious agendas often don't survive the transition of mayoral power. Ageism affecting IT tech workers ages 50 and over. IT tech workers ages 50 and over have a harder time finding work than younger workers, research shows. Meanwhile, surveys suggest that people in this group believe they face age bias in the workplace. Here, an expert shares how workers can prove they were discriminated against in hiring decisions. Ours is a youth-obsessed culture and the workplace is no exception. A 2022 survey from AARP of nearly 3,000 of its members found that roughly two-thirds of workers over the age of 50 said they believed older employees face age discrimination at work. AARP, the advocacy group, conducted the survey online and by phone. And the current moment's shaky economy is most 
likely compounding the problem when it comes to hiring. Research indicates that after the Great Recession, it took older workers who were displaced about twice as long to find a new job as younger workers. What's more, older workers who were unemployed for six months or more had far worse outcomes in reemployment, including 59% who made less money than their previous job. Ray Peeler, an associate legal counsel at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a federal agency that oversees enforcement of workplace discrimination laws, said that when it comes to hiring discrimination, the difficulty lies in not knowing who got selected, what differentiated that person from you, and whether or not you were more qualified for the role. To make a claim in court under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which covers workers ages 40 and older, Peeler said you first have to file a charge within 180 or 300 days of an incident, depending on state and local laws. Last year, the EEOC resolved roughly 13,000 age discrimination charges filed against employers. Of those cases, only 18% were found in favor of the employee. To prove age discrimination, you have to show that your age was the difference between being hired or not, as opposed to some other legitimate rationale. This is not easy to prove, but it's not impossible either. Maybe the frontline recruiter showed initial enthusiasm in your application, but suddenly lost interest upon finding out how old you were. Or perhaps age was a factor in the company's screening software if it required you to provide age-related information, such as your high school graduation year. That's not immediately relevant to the job. The job market remains strong, yet layoffs and hiring freezes are happening in a range of industries. If you suspect that you may be laid off soon, here's what human resources and retirement experts want you to know. For example, you should know where to access your state's unemployment application. Layoffs and hiring freezes are sweeping across industries, from automotive to big tech, even as the overall job market remains strong. Despite these companies' moves, the broader job market is still showing strength. U.S. employers added 390,000 jobs in May, and the nation's unemployment rate remained at a low 3.6%. The latest job gains come after nearly a year of employers adding more than 400,000 jobs a month, a string of strong showings. Even with the relative ease many workers would have in finding new roles in a still strong job market, it's wise to be prepared, especially in case hiring coups. If you've been laid off or are concerned about your job security, it's a good idea to organize the documents and information you need in case you get let go. Insider compiled a list of seven things to know from human resources and retirement experts. These tips are helpful for people who have been laid off and are now without a job, as well as people who have been furloughed or have been forced to take an unpaid leave. If during an interview process, you have an inkling that age discrimination is playing into the hiring manager's decision-making, Peeler advised keeping records of your conversations and interactions with people at the company and information on who was selected for the job. In court, if you can show evidence that your age might have played a role in your not getting hired, Peeler said, the employer would have to then explain why they made the decision they did. With this pandemic, 
career cushioning is the latest words that I hear. And, well, it's the latest work trend. And people on LinkedIn say it can help you recession-proof your paycheck. It completely makes sense why this is taking off. Tech layoffs in the headlines and economists still predicting a recession on the horizon. It's not surprising that many are rethinking their budgets and their careers right now. And over on LinkedIn, people are talking about something called career cushioning. LinkedIn career expert Catherine Fisher defines it like this in her newsletter. Career cushioning is taking action to keep your options open and cushioning for whatever comes next in the economy and job market. Think of it like an insurance policy to set yourself up for success. Career cushioning differs from the traditional advice to work extra hard at your job in hopes of avoiding a layoff come recession time. Instead of trying to make themselves indispensable in their current roles, career cushioners are looking outside of their companies and low-key starting to search for their next jobs before they absolutely have to. So, what does that look like in practice? Fisher recommends three key steps. First, take stock of your skills and work on building any missing skills you need to land your next great job. Pointing out that 40% of companies on LinkedIn globally explicitly rely on skills to find the right job candidate. So make sure your skills are highlighted on your resume and professional profiles too. Second, she suggests staying connected with your network because you never know who might be looking to hire someone just like you for a great new role and finally make a plan for the next steps you want to take in your career. Other advocates for career cushioning by actively applying for new jobs, even if you're happy in your current position. For example, the CEO of Quirk recently shared that she regularly applies for jobs despite being a business owner herself. She explains, given mass layoffs, economic uncertainty, and the rising number of dissatisfied employees, it's critical to be prepared for any eventuality. I know it sucks to hear that, but it's the reality. As a business owner, I'm not immune to market fluctuations either. That's one reason I apply for jobs and take interviews. Create different versions of your resume and then tailor them to the job application you are submitting. Seek out companies that are known to treat employees well. Look at the Forbes 500 list and the list of best places to work. But applying for a job is only half the battle. You also have to be able to interview well. Preparation is key. Be able to tell stories with information. Don't just go in with your resume and think you're going to pull up everything you've done on a whim. Practice talking about your experiences with a friend. Remember, even though some lucky people make it look natural, interviewing is a skill. So the more you practice, the better you can become. It is also suggested preparing data-driven answers to common interview questions to help you show the value you brought in your previous roles. Find the data points and write at least five examples down. What was the situation? How did you notice it? What did you do to work with others to change it? And what was the result? Ultimately, career cushioning is about understanding that your current job won't last forever. The days of spending your whole career at the same company are way long gone. So why not get ahead of the game by planning for things to change? Boy, I learn something new every day.
career cushioning. Panasonic to shift camera business to focus on mirrorless video. Facing business units that does not believe are expected to grow, Panasonic's CEO says it will shift its business to focus on mirrorless video cameras. As reported by Japanese publication Newswitch, Akira Toyoshima, the president of Panasonic, says that the company is shifting away from some existing television and camera businesses that are not showing signs of growing significantly moving forward. These divisions are not faring as well as others due to what Toyoshima says is the rapid progress of Chinese and Korean companies and the spread of smartphones. The company did not disclose specific figures, though. Instead of continuing with small compact still cameras that are struggling to compete with smartphones and its traditional television business, which has not been available in the United States market for some time, the company will instead focus on compact televisions as well as its mirrorless video cameras. Panasonic has produced compact still focus cameras like the LX100, Mark II, or the LX10 for many years. But the company now seems to be admitting that these compact point-and-shoot products aren't selling as well as they used to, which is a common sentiment among Panasonic's competitors. Instead, Panasonic aims to focus its attention on video cameras, where it has seen significant success in recent years, particularly with the GH series of cameras, and most recently the GH6, which, while advertised as a still camera, is more widely appreciated for its video capabilities. Given Toyoshima's words, it is unlikely that Panasonic will produce any other cameras in the LX line. What kinds of video cameras Panasonic will push more into remains to be seen, as the company did not provide further specifics. This isn't particularly surprising. As earlier this year, a Nikkei report found that Panasonic, along with Canon, Nikon, Fujifilm, and Sony, scaled back its point-and-shoot camera production. The company even said that it has been reducing the volume of point-and-shoots that it has been producing over the last several years in response to the shrinking market. These words from Toyoshima are just further action that will see the company continue to focus elsewhere. Also of note are Panasonic's vision of the future when it comes to televisions. While Toyoshima says that the company is looking into mini and micro LED panels in the future, it also is considering a world where TVs are more portable. They said that they would deliver new value by adapting TVs to people's actions, such as allowing people to carry TVs around instead of gathering around them. I don't know what the time frame is, but the future, this type of TV will likely replace existing TVs, Toyoshima says. This line of reasoning is a bit confusing since portable televisions already exist and are the same products that have led to the collapse of the point-and-shoot market, which is smartphones. Wi-Fi 6 is designed to be backwards compatible with previous standards. That means that the vast majority of Wi-Fi products you have in your home probably work with a Wi-Fi 6 network, although almost none of them support 802.11ax themselves. Wi-Fi 6, the compatibility issues you should know about. Wi-Fi 6 is an industry certification for products that support the new wireless standard 802.11ax. 
Wi-Fi 6 is often referred to as high-efficiency wireless, boasting increased capacities, improved resource utilization, and higher throughput speeds. The very first Wi-Fi 6 products hit the markets around the end of 2018 and early 2019, and the latest high-end products such as smartphones now supports Wi-Fi 6. However, this support is only relevant when you also have wireless network that supports the standard. Only if you use a wireless access point, usually a router with Wi-Fi 6 certification, support for 802.11ax, will you have a Wi-Fi 6 network. If your wireless network does not support Wi-Fi 6, Wi-Fi 6 support in a client will have no bearing on the performance and functionality the client gets on the network. The reports and results we see so far about the deployment of Wi-Fi 6 indicate, among other things, increased performance in terms of better throughput both on 802.11ax clients and some 802.11ac clients on AX networks. As usual, in the early days of a new technology, we also see some compatibility issues. These are challenges anyone who installs new routers with Wi-Fi 6 may face. Compatible basically means works with, and Wi-Fi 6 is designed to be backwards compatible with previous standards. That means that the vast majority of Wi-Fi products you have in your home probably work with a Wi-Fi 6 network, although almost none of them support 802.11ax themselves. So what we mean when we say that a client has compatibility issues is that it does not work normally or whatsoever on a Wi-Fi 6 network. 802.11ac, also known as Wi-Fi 5, was until recently the latest and best standard on the market, and there are still many products on sale that follow the standard. Both routers, repeaters, mesh networks, and, not least, lots of different Wi-Fi clients. Most of these clients will be compatible with a Wi-Fi 6 network without having support for the very latest standard. What clients may cause problems? PCs that use Intel wireless adapters. Several Wi-Fi adapters from Intel have known issues with Wi-Fi 6 networks. These problems are mostly resolved with a driver update, but it's important to note that those updates are not part of any Windows updates, so they will need to be updated manually. As an additional note, if a PC has the Wi-Fi card Intel Dual Band Wireless AC8265 from 2016, this can cause major problems for Wi-Fi networks regardless of wireless standard. However, this issue can also be resolved with a driver update. There are, in other words, several good reasons to make sure that drivers are always up to date. Not sure what wireless adapter you have? Open Device Manager in Windows, locate Network Adapters, and click to view the full list. Your Wi-Fi adapter should be listed there. If some devices experience problems connecting to the Wi-Fi 6 network, the problem may be in missing WPA3 support or the WPA3 slash WPA2 mix mode feature. Mix mode is intended to ensure that older clients can still connect, but in practice there are some clients who do not recognize a setting and refuse to connect at all. Such problems are likely to apply to a number of older products, but reports received so far suggest that it applies at least to the following. Older Apple products such as iPad 4 from 2012 and other products using iOS version 12 or earlier. Older Microsoft Surface model, and as WP3 is much safer than WPA2, 
It is not recommended downgrading the security to WPA2 to let older clients connect. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we look at, yes, some of the different things that are happening in the IT world and how they impact you or I. And yes, we have seen in the past couple of months a few different layoffs. Okay, we've seen a lot of them. In the basic outlook of IT in the coming months, with massive layoffs throughout the IT industry, looks scary. We're hearing big numbers. We're seeing big numbers. 10,000 people were laid off from Meta. Thousands of people are laid off from Twitter or Microsoft or some of these IT-centric companies like Zillow and Redfin. Yes, we are seeing a few different aspects, a few different impacts throughout the IT industry all at once. And these all actually are somewhat inter-unrelated. What? <laughs> yes, unrelated. So we have we have things like Zillow and Redfin, which have been going forward and they've been trying to leverage IT to go through and revolutionize the real estate industry. Of course, that's a real estate industry that's been around for many years. And both of those companies have been around for a lot shorter time. Zillow, they had to lay off people because they went chasing down certain little rabbit holes of, oh yes, we'll buy your house sight unseen for X or Y. And then the real estate market, well, it's done its own thing, as you may be well aware. Redfin experiencing the same kind of thing. Now, this isn't the first time that Zillow or Redfin have experienced market downturns in the real estate industry. And then we have Twitter. All right, let's move on to Twitter. Let's talk about Twitter. Elon Musk made absolutely no secret of how he was going to gut Twitter. So that should not be a surprise to us. Yes, it is a surprise to some people who think he couldn't do it or wouldn't do it or wouldn't even buy it, but that's another story. So let's leave Twitter completely out of it. Let's go and let's talk at companies like Microsoft. No, no, no. Let's talk Meta because Meta is the easiest one to look at. 80,000 employees in size. Now, most of them have never had to face a layoff, ever. This is, this is something that Meta has really, they've been very slow to, to do anything like this. They've always been moving forward with whoever they've had. And there is, there's an idea in general business management. It's not a necessarily a good idea, but it is that you lay off 10% a year to account for dead weight to the people who don't fit into the company goals and work structure. I don't necessarily buy into that because you can rehabilitate a lot of those people. But there are people who do sit around and they do nothing. And maybe, maybe, maybe we need to start addressing the fact that there are employees that do not bring value 
to the company. All right, so Meta finally did that. They went through and they laid off ten per well, they laid off ten thousand employees out of an eighty thousand. So we'll call that ten percent. It's a little bit more, but you have the idea. They also have had to scrap some of their ideas. Meta, by my measurements and a few other people, they're struggling. They're you can call them a failing company by all appearances. But it's not so much that they're failing, it's just a lot of their ventures are misguided and they're spending a lot of money in areas which aren't proven. It's, I mean, I don't even want to talk about their whole metaverse thing. I mean, that's another story for another day for whatever. But I want to talk about the layoffs. So 10% out of, you know, out of that amount isn't that bad. Uh, Also, we need to look at how many of those layoffs impact H-1B visa holders, which are not United States employees. Now, I feel sorry for them. I, I, I definitely feel sorry for them, but they were brought to the U.S. solely for this. So this actually doesn't impact the United States unemployment metrics. And that's where we get into the next thing. And that is that there are some 100,000 or more openings in the IT industry across the country. And most of them are going to be looking for prime candidates. They're not looking for dead weight. They're not looking for someone who happens to be a friend of a cousin of somebody who works at Facebook. So a lot of these numbers reflect doom and gloom. When we talk about companies that are big, when we talk about you know companies the size of Meta, we lose sight. Just as a billionaire might not understand why people stand in line at grocery stores or Walmart, we might not understand how that billionaire can own 50 sports cars that are each more expensive than a few years' salary for us. The monthly number of new IT jobs throughout 2022 has been up and down, but for the general look at it, it's been about 20,000 employees. That's 20,000 new jobs coming out. Now, this is going to go up, and it's going to go down, and it's going to go through various waves, just like any other industry. Is the tech industry going to fall apart? Is uh, is all of the world going to just crumble? No. We're still going to need IT employees. We're still going to be moving forward. And there are so many different roles that are very specialized that require good knowledge that will continue to be around. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. I have a number of systems at home that I use for different purposes. and. I do have a Windows 11 system that I don't use for critical work. And I do have material on it that I do back up. And I find that the backup process under Windows 11 is very time consuming. So I read an article that Windows 11 making you wait for files to copy. I thought it was the way I set up the system. Turns out there's a fix for that. A fix for a bug, yes, yes, a bug that makes copying files painfully slow is now in preview testing for Windows 11 users. Windows 11 users who have run into a problem whereby they're finding that large files are copying really slowly will be pleased to hear that Microsoft has now fixed the issue. 
This issue affects Windows 11 version 22H2. And note that the fix is in place in the freshly released preview build 25.25.2. So, in other words, those testing the operating system now have access to the fix to run it through its paces and ensure all is working correctly. Naturally, it will come through to the release version of Windows 11 eventually. As reported by Ned Pyle, who is Microsoft's Principal Program Manager in the Windows Server Engineering Group, the final fix for Windows 11 22H2 production computer will come in a normal monthly cumulative update through Windows Update once validated in Insider Builds. Performance being considerably reduced when copying larger files, which simply means they'll take a lot longer to copy over than they should, and going by some reports, they might take twice as long, in fact, and when copying larger files from a remote computer down to Windows 11 computer or when copying files on a local drive, it's a painful long process, Pyle explained. Pyle added that PCs on home networks or small offices were less likely to encounter this bug, but it's still possible, clarifying that you are more likely to experience this issue copying files to Windows 11 version 22H2 from a network share via server message block, but local file copy might also be affected. He just assumes that the regular computer users don't have large size video files or large size audio files. Hey, they do. The analysis is that not long now for the full release of the fix, we hope. Obviously, this resolution will be more than welcome as copying big files can be unwelcome long wait for up to twice the length of time as normal. That said, it's still in testing right now, so that's not going to help those running the release version of Windows 11. When will the fix actually arrive on PCs in the real world? Well, it depends on how testing goes, of course, naturally. However, what we do know is that this won't be here this month, or just another way of saying, not this year, as a cumulative update for December has already been pushed out in preview. And so is too close to the horizon. It'll be released in under two weeks now. What we can hope for is a smooth path with testing means we'll see this cure bundled with the Windows 11 update for January, which will be unleashed on January the 10th, which still isn't too far away. We could still be waiting longer if testers uncover, well, something unforeseen with the fix. Of course, or indeed, other unforeseen problems introduced elsewhere. It wouldn't be the first time a patch for one issue causes another flaw to pop up. Microsoft has been busy fixing a whole bunch of frustrating issues which have affected some parts of Windows 11 user base in recent times. That includes a nasty bug that caused stuttering while playing games and a seriously thorny gremlin that half broke some printers, not to mention a glitch that slowed down the CPU. Windows 11 is slowly but surely becoming a smoother experience in that respect, though in an ideal world, we wouldn't see so many major bugs coming through in the first place. When it comes to getting any real work done, I just keep using systems installed with Windows 10. Reduce instruction set computer. Well, there's RISC versus RISC 5 or V versus ARM. That's three different types of reduced instruction set computers. What is the difference? Having a hard time differentiating between RISC, 
RISC-V and ARM. There are RISC computers and there are RISC computers. How do they differ? The processor is the brain of any computer and it is constantly evolving to improve efficiency. A processor's design determines how many instructions it can do and how fast and efficient it can do them. RISC, RISC-V and ARM are terms used in processor design to denote a type of processor using a specific type of instruction set architecture, otherwise known as ISA. Although not commonly used in mainstream computers, these processors power smartphones, microcontrollers, single board computers, and all kinds of Internet of Things devices. It can be hard to understand the difference between RISC, RISC-V, and ARM, whether it be a microprocessor, a microcomputer, or a regular desktop computer, their processors all use an instruction set architecture, and instruction set architecture is the part of the processor that contains all the basic instructions a processor can execute. These instructions are the building blocks of a computer program. They are usually not more complex than your basic addition and subtraction. In general, there are two types of instruction set architecture circling in the market. They are RISC and CISC. RISC stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer, while CISC stands for Complex Instruction Set Computer. Both architectures are prevalent today, with x86, Intel, and AMD processors being the top processor utilizing CISC, and ARM, Qualcomm, and MediaTek processors are the most popular RISC architecture. Basically, RISC is a computer architecture designed and optimized to use fewer instructions than its CISC counterparts. These fewer instructions and other optimizing technology used in RISC architecture allow these types of processors to use less power, making them ideal for smartphones, cameras, smartwatches, and all kinds of Internet of Thing devices. Well, what is ARM? ARM processors are some of the top RISC architecture in the market. Why they are the most popular RISC processors. Before RISC-V, ARM-based processors were the only option for anyone wanting to build an electronic product using their own custom processors. ARM with a lowercase rm limited is a company that designs and licenses chips for various hardware manufacturers such as Apple, MediaTek, Qualcomm, and smaller companies. They use their own closed-source ARM instruction set architecture to design highly efficient microprocessors and system-on-a-chip. All designs made by ARM are known as Advanced Risk Machine Processors, or simply ARM, or uppercase processors. Aside from being one of the first companies to sell and custom-make chip designs, ARM has managed to be the dominant risk chip designer because of its continuous innovation with the ARM instruction set architecture and ARM processor designs. Much like AMD's APU, which combines CPU and GPU into one die, ARM processors are known to combine CPU, GPU, memory, DSP, and various modems all in one die or chip. This is called System on a Chip, or SOC. This closed integration of multiple modules has allowed the ARM processor to be fast and efficient. Well, what is RISC-V or RISC-V? RISC-V is an open standard instruction set architecture developed at the University of California, Berkeley. 
This instruction set architecture doesn't introduce any new technology in the market, yet many speculate it is the future of RISC-based processor, so why is it there? RISC-V has gained attention from companies like Amazon, Google, Qualcomm, Intel, Rockchip, Sci-Fi, Sony, ZTE, and Western Digital. This is because RISC-V is an open-standard instruction set architecture. RISC-V International, a nonprofit association for RISC-V, allows anyone to use the RISC-V instruction set architecture on their processors without paying a fee. The great thing about RISC-V is its ability to expand the instruction set based on whatever processors your chip will need for a given product. RISC-V only starts with a base instruction set of 47 instructions. These instructions include all the basic functionalities a chip needs to work and do basic tasks. Designers will then be free to choose which instructions to add to the base instruction set to give the chip all the functionalities it needs without any extra bloat functionalities it wouldn't use. Although RISC-V is still a relatively new instruction set architecture, its potential to provide cost-effective and highly efficient specialized chips for various applications is what makes it a special instruction set architecture. Well, currently, ARM and RISC-V, which is better? Well, ARM and RISC-V are instruction set architecture that follow the RISC design philosophy, so which one is better? There is right now a two-year difference in terms of research and development. ARM's latest processor now runs on ARM version 9 instruction set architecture. To put that in perspective, the latest ARM version 9 processors provide around 30% higher performance and are 50% more energy efficient. So in terms of raw performance, ARM processors are still in the lead. But with RISC-V providing twice the compute density, RISC-V processors seem to have an advantage over ARM processors regarding wearable technologies which greatly benefit from using smaller size processors. RISC, RISC-V, and ARM are different instruction set architectures, and in summary, RISC is a design philosophy that uses few instructions than you would find on a regular desktop processor like the x86. Having a shorter and few instruction allows RISC processors to be highly power efficient. ARM is a closed source instruction set architecture based on RISC that is licensed to companies for their processors and system on a computer. The ARM instruction set architecture allows ARM to design high-performance RISC processors like Apple's M1 chips, and on the other hand, RISC-V is an open standard based on RISC that anyone can use to design their own chips without paying license fees. Its open-source nature allows the RISC-V instruction set architecture to be further modified and expanded to make specialized chips for specific tasks. Although it might not seem to be all that important, this ongoing competition between ARM and RISC-V will surely benefit all consumers, especially when it comes to Internet of Things devices, microcontrollers, single board computers, and handheld devices such as smartphones and tablets. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, we're here. It's 
it's Christmas season. Oh my gosh, Christmas! Oh man, I didn't buy anything yet. How about you guys? Hey, you guys out there, you buy anything yet? <laughs> what are you getting for Benjamin? Yes, I know what yeah. I know what he would like to have. Yeah, uh, okay. yard tools. Yard he tools. Yard yeah. tools. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, you know, we we've been talking in recent uh, days about some of the different. Uh, uh, just, I had no idea the amount of tech that's involved with yard tools. You know, I, I think of the the old time. You, 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 Come on, let's crank. not eat up the segment, Ben. Talking about tech and yard tools, we'll get there. We okay. can do a whole week next next year if you want. Sure, but sure. right now, it's last minute stuff for Christmas, and I've been pulling in a lot of tech to go through. So I'm going to yeah, go through yeah. pretty fast, and it starts with the Poly Studio P5 webcam. It's a little bullet kind of camera. It's the, you, the swivels. It clamps on over the edge of a monitor mm-hmm, or a notebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, the privacy ring will close the shutter and shut down the camera. There's an LED up top that changes from green to red when there's no video being fed. And the USB feeds an all-black screen when you're not sending anything, which is kind of cool. Nice, it's nice. Not just yeah, yeah, yeah. It has an app that lets you play with a fairly full setting set, and that is the Poly Studio P5. Let's talk about TVs. Television needs a signal. And if you don't have Roku or Wi-Fi and you don't have a cable service, there is this old technology, over-the-air broadcasting. (laughs) Yes. But you need an antenna. Mm -hmm, Now, we have something unusual in Cleveland where I'm based. Channel 8 in Cleveland is still on VHF. The mm-hmm. channel numbers we see have nothing to do with their broadcasting since we <laughs> changed to the all-digital standard. Mm-hmm. But they're still down on VHF where a lot of sets don't have tuners that reach and a lot of antennas don't have signal sensitivity. Mm-hmm. I had Antop, A-N-T-O-P, send some antennas. One is a mud flap style and one's a rod. Uh, the SBS 301, mud flap style antenna, black on one side, white on the other so you can... Tape it to a wall. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. Kind I like disguises. that. Um, it, it comes with an amplifier. You'll need one wall outlet for that. And a second RF connection, good for an FM receiver or an over-the-air box or what do you need. Uh, projector. Now, we tried it on three sets, each a different brand, and not one of them saw our local channel 8 still on VHF. Okay. Since the digital divide, more stations move their transmitters into UHF, regardless of what the number is. UHF, ultra high frequency VHF, very high frequency, and that's all you need to know about it. Yeah. Uh, if you're closer to the transmitter than I am, that antenna may, might be all you need. For what I need, Antop also sent their considerably more massive 88,000 SP, or rather 800 SPS, and that was a goof. The 800 is about the size of a safe deposit box upgrade with rods out the side, so it finds spousal approval to be a challenge. What they mm-hmm. meant to send, they arrived about a week later, the AT500 SBS. It looks a little more like a cross between a sound bar and a really short banker's lamp where you can stand it up. In fact, it can hide its entire height behind my 55-inch set. Okay, good, good. Uh, either way, the length improves its reception, but still, it doesn't see Channel 8 on my inside set. So I'm led to believe that regardless of what their support guy said, its tuner isn't picking up Channel 8, and that's the insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now let's go from eyes to ears. Cyber Acoustics sent two headphones, the HS200, two, I'm sorry, 2000, which okay. is a USB headset, and the HS2000BT, 
which is Bluetooth. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, those things are they're quite adequate performers. Are they uh, audiophile great? No, not quite. But when do you listen to symphonies on your headset, right? And in well, most of the conferences, okay, well, I do, but the, but I'm I'm a <laughs> nerd. I'm I'm weird like that. Okay, uh, yeah. They also sent their uh, WC3000 HD webcam and their dock. Now, cyber acoustics, just to position the whole line, not the very tip-top, state-of-the-art breakthrough uh, technology. Yeah. Not the very cheapest price, but they are modestly priced. They're less expensive than a lot of what's out there. Their sure. performance is adequate for what most people need most of the time, and they are worth looking into. Okay. So, so, so they're they're nice middle of the road. It's not yeah. not too cheap, not too expensive. Okay, everybody, uh, and I like that. Yeah, everybody's a compromise. We've been through this. Yeah. Uh, Handio Design sent their Elastic Loop dual disc phone grip and stand. It can okay. work as both. It All comes right. in a, the colors and designs and things. The why to buy on this category is pretty clear. To coin a phrase, oops happens. Yes, yes. You know, my wife loves those those various different types of the uh, the hand loop things. I I don't, but I'm I know I'm I'm risking it. Well, same here. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But if you're using them, this one's worth looking at. Uh, Handio. Uh, let's see. Uh, the Handio brand comes in a pretty good choice of disc designs and. Uh, even offers that bling factor. Uh, ego. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I was just going to ask you how you spell Handio. Uh, I'm sorry, I misread it. It's Handle O. H A N D L O. H A N D L. Like Hand L O. Okay. There we go. Oh, I like that one too. It's got a, a, a nice United States flag on it. All right. Yeah. That, 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 pick your country. That, They'll that, make one that's, for you. That's the luxury we have of the cameras here in, you know, in between our two studios. <laughs> Picture phone. Exactly. Uh, As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell, and that's Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation QR codes, what are they, and how to make them. Thursday, December the 8th. Meeting time is at 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is bcug.com. The New York Amateur Computer Club has lightning talks, text-to-speech and speech-to-text with a free AI software and Microsoft PC Manager. Thursday, December 8th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, December 9th, Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. Kingsbite Computer Club meets Tuesday, December the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The number to confirm is 
278-7320. The Tech Ed Connect Group, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, January the 5th, that's next year, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. And the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 6th, meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter coat. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week.